Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Australia fixed its mass shooting problem. We'll again review a successful method to stop mass shootings. After the Shah of Iran was allowed into the U.S. for medical treatment, the embassy hostages were seized in Tehran. We'll hear about a new film that connects health and history. And we'll discuss corruption at the top in Israel and South Africa. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Often the Onion sums things up better than anyone else. After yesterday's mass shooting at a Florida high school, the Onion ran the same article it does after every big mass shooting. The headline says, No way to prevent this, says the only nation where this regularly happens. In that spirit, we rebroadcast an interview I did after Sandy Hook in 2012 with David Hemingway. He's a professor of health policy at Harvard and director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center, We went over the case of Australia. It hasn't had a mass shooting since 1996 when it made some changes after a mass shooting. David Hemingway explains what the Australians did after 35 were killed in Port Arthur. Most other countries, when there are these mass killings, uh, this is a sentinel event, and they decide we have to do something to prevent these. And Australia... Uh, really has stepped up and really changed the way they approach uh, their firearm issues. I think the the key thing, if there's one lesson from this that I want to emphasize over and over, is that it was because the prime minister was a conservative uh, who said, okay, enough is enough. And that we're waiting here in our country for... Uh, brave conservatives to step up and say enough is enough. We have to have more sensible uh, laws. And this was John Howard, and right. that was just the very beginning of his prime ministership, which lasted a long time yes. until 2007, um, almost 10 years. And it's something he's still very proud of. And, he, and, and I think most Australians support it uh, strongly. The attack was with a semi-automatic weapon in Australia. What changed? Um, well, the they did in large numbers of things, but the thing which got the most press uh, was um, that they had a mandatory buyback where they bought back uh, semi-automatic and pump, pump action rifles and shotguns. And they bought back um, almost 700,000 of them because uh, this is the type of weapon uh, that had been used. And these and other massacres, they had had, as you mentioned, um, They had had 13 massacres before then, none nearly as horrific as that one. All right, so um, here we are, and um, the idea of a gigantic buyback, it's almost something that um, is incomprehensible here. Yeah, I mean, I I think the lesson one learns um, is not here's exactly what some other country did and here's what we should do. Uh, The big thing to learn is that you can do something. Uh, and in that country, what really made the most sense was it's a smaller country um, than we are. Uh, it didn't have as, as many uh, weapons. It's an island country, uh, so it's hard to smuggle in weapons if people wanted to, to have those. 
um, there's a lot of differences, but the big thing was, gee, they could do something. And, and it wasn't just the buyback, but it was, it was tightening up. It was making their uh, gun policy stronger. And it looks like not only what happened was that they eliminated uh, the mass shootings, knock on wood, uh, but that at the same time that the buyback and these laws came in over a two-year period. And within that two-year period, there was the largest drop in firearm-related suicides and firearm-related homicides. There was a two-year drop in firearm-related homicides by 46%, a two-year drop in firearm-related suicides by 43%. Uh, so large, large drops, um, and it's just what one would have hoped to happen. And uh, these uh, trends have continued over time. So uh, if one had looked in 1996 and said, what is the best thing that could happen with these laws? That, was, that is actually what happened. In this country, a lot of people argue that if you, even if you make new laws, there's so many guns out there now that uh, we're going to be awash in them anyway, and people are going to keep getting killed. Um, well, th- that's not quite true. For example, I live in Massachusetts, and um, the people who are using guns uh, in a way which we don't want them to use them most often uh, are uh, inner-city uh, teens and young adults. And they are not born with guns, and their parents don't have guns. Uh, There are very few guns they can steal in the community. And so what happens is that guns have to be smuggled in. Uh, And we can help prevent that smuggling. And guns are smuggled, and we know where they're from. They're from western Massachusetts. They're from uh, Vermont and New Hampshire, which have very uh, permissive gun laws. And they're from down south, uh, which have very permissive gun laws. If we... For example, all we would need is a one-gun national one-gun-per-month law, uh, and it would help reduce dramatically the, the uh, smuggling of guns. Because I can tell you, I'm an economist. It doesn't pay to go to South Carolina and buy one gun and bring it back up to Boston and sell it on the street. You have to be able to buy a lot of guns. All right. So you think there's, there's people in Massachusetts who go out and, um, and buy 100 guns and bring them back? Or, or numbers of guns. That's right. All right. Um, now, one of the things I was interested in John Howard saying, he's written an editorial mm-hmm. about his experience and uh, his experience with the U.S., and he went to the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library, and he gave a speech in 2008, and he talked about uh, what he did with uh, gun control in Australia that everybody in the room just like, uh, you know, <gasps> did one of those horrified deep breathing exercises. <laughs> and uh, he wrote in that article, so deeply embedded is the gun culture in the U.S. that millions of law-abiding Americans truly believe it's safer to own a gun based on the chilling logic that because there are so many guns in circulation, one's own weapon is needed for self-protection. And uh, he thinks that, it, you know, is almost... Um, you know, we're, we're beyond the pale on that um, psychological, making a psychological breakthrough that what we should do is gun control. We should, you know, we have people lining up to buy more guns. Today. Well, uh, the evidence uh, contradicts that belief. I mean, what I believe in, who knows what uh, is true in 320 million people if you, if you just you know, listen to uh, the news, or if you uh, just ask your friends, but there is a science, and there's been a lot of studies, and what they indicate is that a gun in the home uh, is not good for the homeowner. Typically, it, it, what it indicates is that a gun in the home will uh, increase the likelihood that somebody in the home, particularly a, a woman, uh, will be more likely to be murdered. Uh, that a gun in the home will dramatically increase the likelihood that someone in the home will die in a suicide. 
um, and that a gun in the home, uh, the problem is that the guns in the home often get out into the street, and uh, it's not necessarily the homeowner, but it's somebody who has stolen the gun and make the streets much less safe. So we know that more guns in the community increase the risk of all types of violent death, uh, and that guns in the home for almost all gun owners are not very beneficial. That doesn't mean it's, you know, that tomorrow something bad's going to happen in your house if you have a gun, because these are fairly rare events. But it, what, what it means is that uh, not having a gun is actually probably going to make you much safer. Uh, if you're the average person, you may be a different type of person where someone's stalking you and that may be a different case. But for the average person, uh, it really looks like not having a gun uh, makes you safer and the community safer. And, you know, all you have to do is sort of look at uh, the rest of the developed world. And that's much more true there. It's, it's true there. Uh, if you look at areas in the United States where there are fewer guns and stricter gun control laws, uh, what happens is uh, controlling for urbanization and so forth, comparing likes to likes, uh, where there are fewer guns and stronger laws, uh, you have much lower rates of death, of homicide, of suicide, and of accidents. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with David Hemingway. He's director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. And um, we're talking about Australia and the situation there that um, they went through in uh, 1996. Um it sounds like you've done research on other countries, on other situations, and but you know I've come come away from it with this um, less guns means less violence um, mm-hmm. philosophy. Well, yeah, well, it's it's not less violence. Uh, there's no evidence, for example, that other countries are more or less violent than the United States in terms of uh, you know aggression of kids, in terms of uh, all sorts of crime, in terms of. Uh, burglary, in terms of robbery, in terms of assault, in terms of sexual assault. We, we, we're an average country um, in terms of the developed world. Uh, the only thing that makes this difference, it looks like, is that we have all these guns and we have very easy access to guns, and so sometimes we use guns, and guns are very lethal. Do you buy into any of the philosophies about um, everything from our... Uh, gaming situation with shooter games to our Hollywood movies. There's a kind of a, a weaponry thread that runs through the United States. We sell more weapons than anybody else to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. It's it's we're we're um, different. Well, we're different just in terms of weapons, and that's really a policy choice. And you should recognize that uh, when you ask Americans, not about do you favor gun control, which too many Americans think means taking away your guns, but if all sorts of sensible gun control policies, which most of the, the rest of the world has, even countries with lots of guns, like should there be universal background checks? Should you have to have some training uh, before you have a gun? Should you store your gun appropriately? The large majority of people, even the majority of gun owners typically say, oh, yes, and we don't have any of those things. So it's not just that we have more guns, but we have a situation where we make it really easy for inappropriate people to use guns and get guns. Uh, when you have a situation where uh, you know, 30% or more of gun transfers, there's no background check, it's just an invitation that bad things will happen. Do you have some suggestions for what President Obama should do next? Oh, Have-ne- I certainly do. I'm glad you asked that. Um, what I think he should do, I mean, uh, what I would like to see is him focus on one piece of legislation. 
uh, such as, and just say, this is the one thing that really makes a difference. And I think it's universal background checks. And I think we should get everybody to stand up and say, you know, whoever you are, if you're in Congress, say, I am for or against universal background checks. And I would just like to see people say to their second graders or go to a second grade classroom and say, no, I don't want universal background checks. I want criminals to be able to buy guns without any background check at all. Uh, the other thing I'd like the administration to do, which they really can do, is shed light on this issue. Uh, we should have a national commission about our firearm situations. We should have hearings about, we haven't had hearings about firearms in, in decades and decades. We should have the Surgeon General write a report about what's going on. Uh, we should have better data from the government. Right now we have a, a good data system about violent deaths, the National Violent Death Reporting System, but we only fund it for 18 states. We're missing it in 32 states, so we really don't know nearly as much as we'd like to. Uh, we don't know what percent of households have guns in the United States. There's two private surveys which are saying very different things. One is saying gun ownership is increasing rapidly and now 50% have guns. And the other survey, which I think is a better survey, but it's saying gun ownership is falling and we only have about a third of households with guns. And it's very easy to find out. We have uh, behavioral risk factor uh, surveillance surveys that go out. Uh, to every state, and in 2004, we had a nice gun qu question. I just said, do you have a gun in your house? And we got good information about every state, and we stopped doing that. It's very easy uh, to do. Um, he ought to say to CDC and the Institutes of Health and um, all the major funders to, to say we should do more research on that. We should give money to do research on that. We give money to do research on AIDS. We give money to do research on alcoholism. Why are we not giving money to do research about our firearm situation, which is out of control compared to the rest of the developed world? It seems like in these um, mass shooting situations, um, so many of them, this one here and uh, the West Virginia one, the last one in Colorado, I mean, would, uh, I don't know if universal background checks would have stopped Oh, I don't them. think universal background checks would help that. I mean, what would help that is, I think, is if not President Obama, but citizens stepped up. Because what we want to see, okay, the evidence, it, most of these mass shootings were suicides. This was a suicide. Uh, and it was a suicide, you know, I'm going to kill lots of people, then I'm going to die. All the people who have committed these mass shootings have either died by suicide, died by suicide by cop, or been immediately arrested and incarcerated forever. Their life is over. Um, and what we really want to do is, what we know is that a gun in the house is a risk factor for suicide. And I think if that gun had not been easily available to this troubled young man, uh, there would not have been a suicide and there would not have been a mass shooting. Uh, and what we want to do is... But, I mean, they would have never denied it to his mother, who was... Uh, no, but, no, no, but see, but we don't want laws. What we want to do is change the culture, and we want gun owners to step up. We're trying to work with gun owners, and they're really amenable to this, to create an 11th commandment for gun ownership, which is going to be very similar to friends don't let friends drive drunk, which is that friends don't let, you know, help friends who are going through a really rough patch get the gun out of the house for a month or uh, six months and then put it back. Uh, we know that m large, large numbers of suicides are uh, spontaneous and that the urge passes. And here's this kid. This kid, if he got to be 23 years old, might have been fine. But right then, clearly he had major problems and she should not have had a gun in the house. And her friend should have helped her figure out ways to get rid of her guns for a little while. 
That was Harvard Health Policy Professor David Hemingway talking with me in 2012 after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting yesterday in Parkland, Florida. They experienced the worst high school shooting ever in America. Since we recorded this interview five years ago, very few of Hemingway's suggestions for gun control from other countries has been implemented. One change was from uh, 2012. The National Violent Death Reporting System was funded only in 18 states, we said in the interview. Now 40 states report violent crime. Florida isn't one of them, interestingly. And also, David Hemingway uh, suggested that the Surgeon General research gun violence. And in 2014, President Obama appointed a Surgeon General that uh, was criticized for calling gun crime a national health emergency. And last April, President Trump relieved him of his post. You can hear more from David Hemingway tomorrow on Science Friday. They are going to rerun their interview with him from several years ago as well. So um, we're making good economy of our interviews here on public radio. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about a new film, A Dying King. It's about the last days of the Shah of Iran. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The fall of the Shah of Iran was deeply intertwined with his failing health. Secrecy, ego, and imperial power all came together in his downfall. There's a new documentary that traces the connection between the Shah's health and his political failures. It's called A Dying King, and it's showing at Northeastern Illinois University. And we have with us Matteo Farzane, Associate Professor of History there, Principal of the Mossadegh Initiative at Northeastern Illinois University that's showing the film on Sunday and Monday. Nice to see you, Matteo. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. And on the line with us, we have the filmmaker... Bobak Kalhor, and he is the director and producer of A Dying King. Thanks for joining us, Bobak. Morning, Jerome. Thank you for having me. You know, I, it's funny to go back in time and look at this period. I don't. I think um, a lot of people remember it kind of casually as uh, the Shah had all these health issues, but no one really understood that he had had health issues for years and was uh, keeping them secret because of the, the politics and. Um, uh, tradition. Uh, how sick was he six years ago, Bobak? Um, six years before his death, he was, he was diagnosed with cancer. Um, it, this the story of the Shah's illness. Uh, you know, it came to us as a. Uh, I was doing an interview uh, while I was working at a radio station here in LA. Uh, we used to do medical programs uh, pertaining to the Iranian community with a friend of mine, Dr. Shirin Tofai. And uh, we did an interview with Dr. Leon Morgenstern, who was the chief of surgery at Cedar sinai and he had written an article in a medical journal called The Shah's Spleen, chronicling his final days when he left Iran. He went to Egypt, Morocco, uh, Bahamas, Mexico, New York, uh, Texas, uh, Panama, and then Egypt again where he died. For me, the the, the catch was that as you mentioned, everybody kind of knew the Shah was sick. You know, they said, you, know, you asked him, how did the Shah pass away? So he had cancer. 
Well, he did have cancer, but the surprising fact was not many people knew how he exactly died,、uh, and it wasn't of his cancer.、Uh, you know, that was that was an interesting point to me, which got me interested in getting this information and traveling and speaking with all these doctors and putting this history together. Then there's the bigger question of when he got the cancer.、Uh, did he know about it? Who knew about it? How did it affect his rule? And how did it affect the 1979 revolution?、Uh, you know, we we've、uh, the facts that we have come from the available books, the Queen's book, uh, uh, Sir William Shawcross's book, and most of those reference the start of the illness around 73, and they say the Shah didn't know about it. The research we did in the interview, and you'll see it in the documentary,、uh, it indicates that the, he knew earlier on, possibly as soon as as early as '68, about the cancer, and it did affect his decision making、uh, and his relationship with U.S.、Uh, in that fact.、Uh, Matteo, you have、uh, the Queen's book right there.、Uh, what, 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 tell us about what the official line is here, and what、uh, what most people think about this. Well, the thing is, we don't have an official line. That's the issue. Well, her, she's what, got the official line. Yeah, what the what the Farah Palafi basically says that、uh, there was a certain amount of malpractice that takes place, and、uh, there's an impl- implied line that this could have been orchestrated by various groups that didn't want the Shah to have an improved health.、Uh, what's fantastic and what's interesting about the film itself. Uh, is that as a historian, I teach Iranian history.、Uh, you see a line that is a continuous line、uh, in Iranian history from five centuries back. That there is always this、uh, hiding of the truth from the public for a variety of reasons, and most of the time, these hiding of the truths have led to disastrous results. And it appears that Iranian history doesn't learn from it, or the Iranian officials don't learn from it. And in this way,、uh, what Babak has done is to offer a very unique perspective、uh, from a very unique angle,、uh, which is medical history or medical malpractice or health issues of a very important ruler in the Middle East, in this case in Iran, that would make us think. That sometimes things are not really as complicated as they might seem. It could be a simple health issue that, if it doesn't get、uh, enough attention, it could lead to disastrous results.、Um, one of my takeaways, Babak, from the film *A Dying King*, is that、uh, don't trust your healthcare to your imperial overlords. <laughs> I don't know how else to put that because he seems to be taking his. Most sincere medical advice from doctors supplied to him from David Rockefeller,、uh, and you know this kind of U.S. influence, and th- this was utterly disastrous.、Um, one of the themes throughout this whole、uh, interview process that we kept re- hearing from the doctors was that if the Shah was an average guy walking into any major hospital, into any major city, he would have had a much More favorable outcome.、Uh, you know, he could have lived longer, and that—that that is kind of the point of this story. Is besides the political fact, is the medical story of how high-profile patients、uh, with the political issues involved with going from country to country and seeing the best surgeons at the best hospitals. Sometimes you get the worst care、uh, going about it that way. And、uh, not only after the Shah left Iran did did he、uh, receive bad care from the inception. Keeping this secret, keeping this secret from his people, 
and not having an Iranian doctor that he trusted treating him and bringing the French doctors thinking they're going to keep his secret and the West is not going to know about his illness, uh, I think those proved uh, to be the wrong decisions on his part, both medically and politically. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lesson every leader should uh, get a grip on that uh, kind of get good advice within your own country because the people outside of it are a disastrous mess. I don't think, you know, uh, his health care was enormously high-profile news. And we've got a clip from the film where um, we have uh, Tom Brokaw, and he's interviewing uh, Dr. Debaki, the famous heart surgeon, who came in and did some of the surgery on the Shah. He was like the surgeon to the stars. He did every, he did Yeltsin, he did everybody. And here's uh, Brokaw talking with him on the news. The Shah had nowhere else to go. One way or another, Egypt would be his final stop. Dr. DeBakey came three days later, uh, ready for operation. And the splenectomy was scheduled and done. Uh, it took about 80 minutes. Spleen came out uh, easily. And shortly after the operation, the uh, Shaw looked quite well. So, in effect, what you're saying is that the operation for the removal of the spleen went well, and if he now continues to respond to chemotherapy, he will continue to live at a fairly normal uh, rate. Exactly. And he's done extremely well following the operation. Really, uh, I think his progress has been much more rapid than, I, than we had hoped for. And that's Dr. Debaki talking about the health of the Shah of Iran, who he had just operated on. And explain what happened there, Babak, because he really messed him up. Well, there were many surgeons and doctors involved. Dr. Debaki uh, came in and wanted to do the splenectomy. Uh, he w got involved in Panama. Uh, the doctors in Panama were resistant to a foreign doctor coming in their country and performing a surgery. So what happened is the Shah left and he went to Egypt and Dr. DeBakey went there and performed a splenectomy. Um, you know, he was a very famous heart surgeon, perhaps one of the most famous surgeons in the world. At that time, he was at the top of his game, uh, but he hadn't performed a splenectomy in over 40 years. Uh, I'm not going to give away the ending of the movie here. I'd like the viewers to see it. <laughs> but uh, there were a lot of complications with that splenectomy, not only with this surgery, uh, with the way it was handled, uh, but the post-operative care and, you know, the, the chemo uh, regimen afterwards and the drugs and medication and antibiotics they gave him and the way it was handled, uh, that it, it was close to malpractice. You know, a lot of people do call it malpractice. And, uh, you know, that, that was the sad part because this, this could have all been prevented uh, you know, had some doctor who had done a lot of splenectomies performed this, that surgery would have gone well. And, you know, one of the takeaways from this story is what would have happened if the Shah would have lived? Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know if he would have lived two, five, ten years. But what you saw at that time was the Iran-Iraq war, and there was millions of people killed on both sides. And there was no outside voice uh, of opposition or anything going into Iran. So... You know, this this death did have a profound effect on the future of the country and the Middle East, for that matter. 
I'm talking with Bob Ack Calhor. He's the director and producer of the film A Dying King about the last days of the Shah of Iran. Also with me is Matteo Farzaneh from Northeastern uh, Illinois University. Uh, do you have some other thoughts about uh, what happened here in the film? Well, another interesting thing that I think it's a uh, byproduct, uh, and I don't think it's intentional in the documentary, which I find very interesting, is a, a very interesting window into uh, cultural limitations of the Iranian society. In this case, the royal family is not an exception. And that is going after somebody who's really famous with a big name, who happens to be a, a cardiothoracic surgeon and not a general surgeon that would usually take care of splenectomies and what have you. They basically went after someone that had a name because this was very, a very famous VIP patient. So we go after the most famous doctor. It doesn't matter if the doctor is a specialist in splenectomies. Uh, he hasn't done one, like Bobak was saying, in 40 years. And he doesn't trust the doctors from Latin America. And Mexico. Who, who, are, and, yeah, who you've got in the film testifying and, and sh like shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, what? Okay, you don't trust us. And you went and, and you know... Went with the star. They, they were insulted, and uh, they knew what they were doing. Well, again, this was kind of taken uh, out of the hands of the family, and the Americans were the ones that kind of were uh, uh, driving this forward with all these uh, uh, semi-agents or representatives of the Shah that were connected to places that were not sure who they were connected to making all these decisions. And the family was basically you know, pushed to the side and they had to take what was coming their way. Now, one of the interesting political decisions was Jimmy Carter's decision to let the Shah of Iran come to the country for medical treatment. Uh, the hostages in Tehran were taken uh, just after that. Uh, what, what was, the, was there a real connection there, uh, Bob Ak? What, what do you think? Well, what was surprising to me in this story was the importance that the medical story had in the taking of the hostages. Uh, the Shah came to the U.S. Uh, President Carter was very well aware that had if the Shah came to the U.S., the embassy would be attacked and uh, the employees are taken as hostage. It had happened a few times before. Uh, what he was going forward with the intention that you know the moderates there that his government was in contact with would step in and 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 moderate and, and release them just as it had happened before. Uh, this time what happened is uh, those people, the moderates in the government, the early Islamic government, were sidelined by this uh, whole hostage-taking. And it, it caused a change in, in, in that government becoming much more radical. Uh, that was the start of the sanctions and, uh, you know, the break in relations and the years of years of sanctions actually started there. Uh, you know, the President Carter knew they were going to they were going to take these people. And when when Dr. Coleman went on and had an interview with the the world about this illness, and he said the Shah needed to stay in the United States for perhaps six months to a year and a half, uh, the Iranians there took this as you know the repeat of 1953 and and the U.S. stepping in and uh, trying to oust their government, and it started a whole process that has lasted to, to today. Yeah. And the lack of understanding about 1979, the Shah's illness, that part of history, that whole revolution, uh, it's emblematic of our lacking understanding of 1953, the right. Mossadegh revolution, and going back to World War II and World War One, and understanding our history. It's a long There's tale. a big void there. And this is just the end of it that we started on. But, you know, you need to right. step back and look at the whole thing to understand what happened to us. 
Babak Kalhor is director and producer of A Dying King. You can see it on Sunday at 3 p.m. and Monday at 2 p.m. at Northeastern Illinois University's Recital Hall. The event is sponsored by the Mossadegh Initiative. The principal in that is Matteo Farzane, Associate Professor of History at Northeastern. Good to see you, Matteo. Good to and see you. And it, it is a free uh, screening of the film, but you could reserve your admission at neiu.edu Mossadegh. And slash slash motion deck. And, and we're also out uh, on uh, iTunes and Amazon and your cable providers. Uh, you can uh, watch it uh, at your homes as well. We're having a screening here, but it's out in the market. So please go and watch it. Okay, that's A Dying King. And we'll be back after the break. And we'll be talking about uh, corruption at the top in Israel and South Africa. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There seems to be an epidemic of corruption with world leaders. We're going to talk about two embroiled leaders right now. Jacob Zuma just stepped down in South Africa. And police in Israel say there's enough evidence to bring charges against Prime Minister Netanyahu in two cases. And with us to do this incredible twofer is Ilani Chernik. And she's a reporter for the Jerusalem Post and a former reporter for the Johannesburg Star. She's originally from South Africa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jerome. Let's start with Jacob Zuma. I've never gotten Jacob Zuma. As someone who just reads about him from afar, he seems... I know we rob an island. I know he was the intelligence guy for the ANC, the champion of the little guy. But he was also, even before he came into office, there was this messy rape case against him, which he was eventually cleared of in unconvincingly, in my mind. And he never looked like a a guy who was going to operate in a in an above-board manner as, as a leader of the country, and he's got all these accusations against him of of state capture and things like that, which aren't surprising. Why does the ANC, did the ANC stick with him for so long? So there's a couple of different points of views on that one. What's interesting is he's a very, despite not having a formal education, he's a very strategic guy. And in the 80s, as you mentioned, he was the head of um, intelligence of Mkonto Wissizwe, which was the armed wing of the ANC, and that, you know, they were very much against apartheid. And he had a lot of dirt. A lot of the people that he worked with as head of intelligence were people that became senior members of the ANC after 1994 when Nelson Mandela became president um, and the ANC took over the country. And he got quite a lot of dirt on a lot of these senior ANC members. And rumor has it that he actually used to bla- was blackmailing and was, you know, I'm going to, what, whatever I have on you, huh. if, you don't, if you try and vote me out, if you try and get rid of me whenever there's a vote of no confidence, I will bring out all this stuff against you and I'll end your political career. So there was a lot of that within the ANC, a lot of fighting, a lot of issues within that kind of stage. That's that's just to set the stage for you a little bit. And basically, in 2007, he masterminded a plan at the ANC-NEC to oust Thabo Mbeki, who was the ANC president of the time and the, and the president of the country at the time. And he managed to kind of rally up, I think, use a lot of blackmail and rally up a lot of the, the National Executive Committee members as well as senior ANC members 
to vote out Thabo Mbeki, and which subsequently le- led to Thabo Mbeki having to step down as president in South Africa. Um, between 2007 and 2009, we had the deputy president of the country running the country at that time until the elections in 2009. And Jacob Zuma had become um, president of the ANC within that period. And then we ended up here in 2017 with Jacob Zuma being now on the other side of the situation. And basically, Sora Ramaphosa kind of, I wouldn't say he did the same thing, but, you know, it was planned. They, they yeah. knew that if Sora Ramaphosa came in as the ANC president, Zuma would have to step down. So it's, it's quite interesting yeah. to see that the, how it's all kind of reversed. You know, my gran always used to say, dig a hole for someone and you fall in it yourself. So, you know, he tried to get rid of Tabo Mbeki, succeeded. And now they've just asked him in the exact same way that he asked Tabo and Becky. And it seems like the idea of running your ex-wife against Cyril Ramaphosa for the ANC leadership, that kind of makes things push come to shove, doesn't it? I mean, you can't, if you're, you're either going to make it the family party of Jacob Zuma or you're going to not. That, and the ANC finally yeah. has to do something. Yeah. And he was very adamant. And that's what's interesting now is that the, the National Executive Committee that was voted in in December is actually half, half, three, three of the members are, are four, Nkosa Dlamini Zuma, who's Jacob Zuma's ex-wife, and three are four Sarama So it's going to be very interesting in the next few months, even the next couple of years, how they're actually going to get certain policies and, and certain issues kind of passed through in the ANC when you've got this massive split within the National Executive Committee, who are the, you know, they're, they're the leading body of the ANC. So it's going to be interesting to see how Ramaphosa is going to kind of juggle that being president of the country, with trying to fix the big fat mess that Jacob Zuma has left, you know, financially the country is it's it's in dire straits. Um, we're almost at junk status. I mean, a lot of the the financial bodies have actually downgraded us. SMP have downgraded us. Moody has downgraded us. So it's going to be. It, so Ramaphosa has a lot of work ahead of him because unemployment is at the highest that it ever was and i mean it's at the dollar to the rand is it's strengthened a bit it's gotten a bit better because of the whole move but it's still there's a long way to go and and zuma's corruption zuma's tenders all that kind of stuff is it's finally caught up with the country how do you clean up a situation like that because people talk about state capture and the gupta family it was big allies of jacob zuma and they seem to have an inordinate amount of input into the uh, South African state and the, there, there are raids on the Gupta family to kind of goose Zuma yes. out of power. How do you get them out of these uh, contracts and everything? The start of it is all these raids that have happened now over the last few days um, and trying to make sure that they that they face the full might of the law. I think what Ramaphosa is trying to do, and I think what he, he's, he's adamant, he's made several statements in the last few days that he's adamant to get rid of state capture to rid the country of corruption and state capture. Because I think it's gone so deep. It's gone, I can tell you now, that when I used to cover protests in the townships with just the, the ward councils of, of the ANC who were running areas, the corruption had seeped down all the way from Jacob Zuma to those little ward councils. And that's, it's very interesting to see that they were giving tenders, you know, they were, they were basically using Jacob Zuma as their example because they were seeing that he was getting away with all of it. You know, he was allowing the Guptas to have tenders with his with his son. I mean, the whole nuclear power plant that's that's supposed to be going up in South Africa. The Guptas are very entrenched in that. Jacob Zuma's son's very entrenched in that. Um, a lot of the the tenders of buildings and things that were going on in the country of infrastructure, the Guptas have. But they basically have their finger in every pile of Guptas. And the start of getting rid of that is to you know to go go straight to the source. 
you you arrest them and you try your best to get them out to get them out from being so entrenched within the country because I mean they paid off Jacob Zuma a lot there was a there was a lot of back pay going off and I'm 100 percent sure that there's a lot of ANC members who were buddy buddy with Jacob Zuma and who were also within this little thing that was going on between him and the Guptas who were also getting kickbacks from it. I'm talking with Ilanit Chernik. She's a reporter for the Jerusalem Post and was a former reporter for the Johannesburg Star. We're talking, obviously, about Jacob Zuma and the change of power in South Africa. But we're going to flip over now and talk about the corruption charges with Prime Minister Netanyahu. There are two sets of corruption charges against him. And it seems like the general overview is almost similar for the politics of this. There's an election coming up. And the people around Prime Minister Netanyahu seem to be trying to decide if they want to back him again. It's a very interesting dichotomy because you've kind of got a similar situation, but yet Netanyahu's charges are much, I would definitely say they're much less than what Zuma's facing, what Zuma's got coming up, got coming to him. Netanyahu basically is looking at two main, as you said, two main charges. It's two cases that are against him called Case 1000 and Case 2000. In case 1000, basically, it's to do with billionaire producer in America who's done a lot of very famous movies, Anon Milchan, and uh, Australian billionaire James Packer. And according to the police and according to what the proof that they found, he's received $300,000 or around a million shekels in gifts from these guys for helping with visa issues. And Milchan was having issues with his visa and allegedly to say thank you for all the help that Netanyahu gave him with sorting out his visa, he was paid back with with a million shekels worth of champagne and cigars. All right, that right there. I mean, it does seem like champagne and cigars, is that a serious payoff? I, I don't know how to view that. I mean, if you don't like cigars, the whole thing's mute, isn't it? <laughs> I don't, I, I don't well, know. I, it's going to be interesting to see how many cigars he actually smoked within that time and how long they lasted him. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so basically, what what happened was is that he tried to also at the same time get a law passed that any Israelis that were coming back to the country from living abroad would get a tax break as well. And it had something to do also with Anon Machan. It had the same. It was the same ah. kind of. You know, it all had to do with each other. The visa thing, the the law that he was trying to, you know, give people tax breaks. It all had to do with his relationship with Anon Machan. And interestingly enough, Netanyahu admitted several times, including on Tuesday night when these allegations came to a head, that he had received the gifts, but he'd done it with good intentions. That he said he wasn't expecting to be paid like this for doing good things. He said, you know, when you have friends and citizens and people who are in dire straits and need help, that you, as Prime Minister, if I can pull in a favor, I pull in the favor. So he hasn't denied that he got the gifts, but he kept reiterating that it was in good faith, it had, was good intentions. He didn't do it so that he could get, you know, he didn't try and pass this law and he didn't try and help his friend with the visa issues. He didn't do it for the money. He didn't do it for the cigars. He didn't do it for any of it. So, well, and that's, this seems to be the, obviously the lesser of the two charges. The other charge yes. seems to be more serious and go yes. into democratic institutions like the newspaper and things. Yes. And, uh, um, Case 2000 basically was to strike a deal with Yediotar or not, which is one of the main papers in Israel. It's one of the main Hebrew language papers in Israel. And basically, he was trying to. What he was trying to do was he was trying to get positive coverage. He was trying to suck a deal so that he would get positive coverage with any idiot or not. 
and he was going to try and kind of hamper the growth of uh, Israel Hayom, which is Yediot Aronot, um rival paper. And and Israel Hayom is you get you get it, they give it out for free. So he was going to try and smack them down a little bit. Have Yediot Aronot become the top newspaper in the country and have all this positive coverage about him all over, you know, and that's the concern is that he was trying to interfere within the media and the public media and that's the, the main concern here and that that's it's not a good thing. It's, it's, it's worrying. It's worrying in many ways that if you have a prime minister who's trying to get his claws into the media itself and trying to make himself look good, especially when you've got elections coming up, you know. Now, it seems like this all could take months to sort out. People have to decide whether to bring the charges against him. Who, who is it uh, up to the attorney general? Is it not up to the attorney yes. general? So it's based, okay. So basically, what happens with this is the police give recommendations to the attorney general. Their recommendations are recommendations. They can't stand for anything. It's basically they've gathered all the evidence, and it's up to the attorney general to decide whether or not to press charges and to go ahead with these charges. So that could take, you know, he's got to go through all, it took 14 months for all of this to come to head. It started 14 months ago. They were trying to gather all the evidence. So basically the Attorney General now has to go through 14 months worth of evidence against Netanyahu, which could take a very long time. It could take, uh, could take eight months, could ta- even take up to a year. So it's going to take a while for everything to really come to head. But the fact of the matter is this is hanging over him and there is a lot of call from the opposition that he should step down. A lot of the opposite, the opposition parties are saying he needs to go. It's time that he needs to be shown the door. Whereas his own party is rallying for him and they're saying, no, he must stay. He deserves to stay. He could, There's no law saying that he can't stay in as prime minister while this is going on. Well, I'm sympathetic to the prime minister when he says, I've been the subject of 15 inquiries and investigations over the years. And he has. And they don't seem to ever amount to anything that stop his political career. And so many Israeli politicians get charged with things that don't ever amount to anything. Is there kind of an incessant semi-prosecution of politicians in Israel? There is. If you look at the comparison between South Africa and Israel, there's definitely a lot more of a, a sense of of justice within the country here. And that's what's interesting about it is where you have a situation with Zuma where it's taken this long, you know, to get rid of him. It's taken like years and years and years and years and years to get rid of someone who's really ripped the country to shreds. Whereas here, small things, it would almost, it, it was a big thing, but it, in the broader scheme of things, if you go and you compare it to Zuma or even to all the, the charges against Trump, it's relatively small, but yet he still faced the full amount of the law. And that's what's very interesting. And I, as far as if I can remember correctly, I think Yitzhak Rabin also stepped down, I think, as, as president or prime minister in the 90s. I think at the time, his wife had a dollar account at a bank and it was illegal at the time. And it was something so small. And he stood he stood down. He decided to step down. So there is a sense of justice. There is. And it will come to head if there's enough evidence, if the police really have found enough against Netanyahu. They will prosecute him. They'll do exactly what they did to Almond. So that's the interesting thing is that even though it's a very small thing, the justice system in Israel works very well and it works and it's very strong. You know, it doesn't matter. You can be a prime minister. You can be an official. You can be anything. If you've crossed the law, there will be consequences. Even if it does take a while for it to kind of come to a head, there will be. And it will be a lot, definitely a shorter period of time than with Zuma. 
Well, we'll keep our eye on what's going on with Prime Minister Netanyahu. And thanks a lot for doing two uh, massive corruption cases of world leaders with us. And Ilani Chernik is a reporter for the Jerusalem Post and a former reporter for the Johannesburg Star. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. I take care. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the politics at the Peace Olympics. You might have noticed that Vice President Mike Pence would not acknowledge Kim Jong-un's sister as she sat just a few feet away from him at the opening ceremonies. He also wouldn't stand for the combined team. We'll talk about the Olympics and what happened with North Korea diplomacy with Bruce Cummings tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. Thanks to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you have been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.